This podcast is a production of the Community Covenant Church in Eagle River, Alaska, a place where real people meet a real God to live in a real world. For more information, visit our website at www.communitycovenant.net. Well, our theme this Advent is regifting Christmas, and last week we spoke of God's compassion and how He desires that our lives would be an expression of the compassion that we've received from Him, that we then would, what? Extend towards others. And today, of course, our topic is mercy. And whenever I come to uh, communion, uh, I am reminded of God's mercy. Uh, when I think of God's mercy, I, I think of the fact that, that God does not give me what I deserve. That's His mercy. And what do I deserve? Well, I deserve what what Jesus did on my behalf. I deserve punishment for my sin. And yet God shows His mercy. He, he doesn't give to me what I deserve. And instead, He gives me the inverse of mercy, which is grace. His unmerited favor. That through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, I receive forgiveness for my sin and am free from the guilt and condemnation that's associated with that. And when we take communion, we're reminded of God's mercy and His grace and that Jesus Christ is the very fulfillment of, of our Old Testament Scripture that talks about the, the Lord being being slow to anger, that, that He's patient with us, that that He removes our transgressions from us. And He does that through His Son. And I love the end of that Old Testament passage in Psalm 103 that we read today, verse 12, where it says, As far as the east is from the west, that's how far He has removed our transgressions from us. That is so powerful. And so when I, when I think of the, the imagery of God's mercy and grace, I'm reminded of a, of a scene from a movie or a play you may be familiar with, uh, Les Miserables. And it's an interaction between a, a bishop and a man who is a main character in that story uh, named Jean Valjean. And I want to show that to you right now.
So we'll use wooden spoons. I don't want to hear anything more about it. I'm sorry to disturb you. You caught him. But I had my eye on this man. Oh, and... thank God. I'm very angry with you, Jean Valjean. What happened to your eye, Monseigneur? Didn't he tell you he was our guest last night? Oh, yes. After we searched his knapsack and found all this silver, he claimed <laughs> that you gave it to him. Yes. Of course I gave him the silverware. But why didn't you take the candlesticks? That was very foolish. Madame Gillot, fetch the silver candlesticks. They're worth at least 2,000 francs. Why did you leave them? Hurry. Monsieur Valjean has to get going. He's lost a lot of time. Did you forget to take them? Are you saying he told us the truth? Of course. Thank you for bringing him back. I'm very relieved. Release him. You're really letting me go? Didn't you understand the bishop? Madame Gino, offer these men some wine. They must be thirsty. Thank you. Don't forget. Don't ever forget. You've promised to become a new man. Promise? Why are you doing this? Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I bought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred. And now I give you back to God. That, that act of mercy and grace that was extended to Jean Valjean from the, from the bishop was life transforming uh, even as the act of God's mercy and his grace in our lives transforms us and we become new people Richard Rohr says this about mercy he says mercy is like the mystery of forgiveness. By definition, mercy and forgiveness are unearned, undeserved, not owed. If it isn't all those three, it won't be experienced as mercy. If you think people have to be merciful, or on the other hand, try to earn mercy, you've lost the mystery of mercy and forgiveness. I believe, writes Roar, with all my heart, that mercy and forgiveness are the whole gospel. Our New Testament passage today, Paul is writing to Titus. Now, Titus was a um, Greek convert. He traveled with Paul and, and assisted Paul. And Paul has him ministering on the island of Crete, which is an island in the Mediterranean off of Greece. Now, the Cretans have a, a dubious reputation of being very uncouth, very unruly. In fact, there's an expression where somebody might call you, you Cretan, 
And if anyone ever calls you that, that's a derogatory remark. And it really harkens back to that ancient understanding of the nature of, of that group of people. So Titus is there, and Paul has sent him a letter encouraging him to continue uh, the work that, that Paul himself did alongside of Titus while on the island of Crete. And the work that needs to be done is the further establishing of the church. But in the establishing of the church, he, of course, needs to appoint leaders for the church. But also, there's a major theme, and that is to combat false teaching that's taking place uh, in the new church. In fact, that false teaching was encouraging those converts on the island of Crete uh, not to to live out a faith that was grounded in the truth of the gospel. But the major theme here is that Christians uh, must live out and be grounded in the basic truths uh, of the gospel. And when we move into chapter 3, which is our New Testament reading, chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, the theme is living out the truth of the gospel expressing the reality of a transformed life through Jesus Christ, but in particular to those who don't know Jesus, those whose lives have not been touched by Jesus. And what Paul is really stressing to Titus in chapter 3 is the importance of remembering that their witness will have a profound impact on the lives of those outside of the church that are looking in, looking to them to see what this Christianity is all about. In chapter 3, the main point is that you have been saved in order to do good, especially to those who are unsaved. You have been saved in order to do good, in order to show mercy and grace that you have received to those who have not yet received it. And you need to do that. And that's an important aspect of your Christian faith and your walk with Christ. Now, he gives three motivations that should motivate all of us for doing that. And the first motivation is found in verse 3 of chapter 3. And in verse 3, he says, At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. In other words, Paul is saying, don't forget where you've come from. Don't forget where the mercy of God and the grace of God through His Son, Jesus Christ, where He's brought you from. And when you look at all those outside of the church who don't know Jesus yet, who aren't a part of the body of Christ, when you look at them, don't look at them with an attitude or a spirit of judgment. On the contrary, you need to express the mercy and the grace that you've received in Christ Jesus. So a major motivation is to remember. Remember our past. Remember who we were 
and who we would be apart from Jesus Christ. But then the second motivation is to remember what we've received in Christ. Remember our present salvation. And we read that in verses 4 through 7. But when the kindness, and that word kindness there in the original language has to do with with the the kindness that that comes from the pity of God. That that He sees us in our brokenness, in our sinfulness, and, and He pities us. And it leads Him to extend His mercy and grace. When that kindness and love, by the way, the word love there is a very interesting word. It's the only time in the New Testament that this word for love that he uses here, philanpia, which is the root what, of our word philanthropy, comes from here, all right? The Lord's love, his philanthropy, if you will, of God, our Savior, appeared. Now, what does it mean, appeared? That the incarnation, God's entrance into human history, is an actual historic event. And it happens in the incarnation of God through Jesus Christ. And when He appeared, verse 5, He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. His mercy. Do you know there's nothing you can do to earn God's favor? There's nothing you can do to, what? Earn salvation. We can't do it on our own. If we could, then there would have been no need for Jesus to give His life for us on the cross. He demonstrates His mercy. He, God does not give us what we do deserve. But rather, He saves us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. The washing of rebirth... Um, that refers to the cleansing of sin and, and the old life is washed away. And the rebirth is that we're given new life. And in that new life, there's renewal and active expression of that new life through the Holy Spirit. All of this is a gift from God that's poured out on us generously. And as we see the Holy Spirit being poured out on us generously, it really harkens back to that that scene in the upper room in Pentecost where the Holy Spirit is poured out upon those first followers of Jesus Christ. And so in the same way, it's, it's poured out upon us. And then he goes on to say that through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified, that's a legal term which means... What? Been declared righteous? Been not guilty? That, that the righteousness of Christ is given to us. Justified by His grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. And so our first motivation is our past. Our second motivation is our present salvation. But then the third is our devotion to living out the truths of the gospel to doing good to those, what? Who don't know Christ yet. And that's a powerful witness. And in verse 8, he says, This is a trustworthy saying, 
And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to what? To devote themselves to doing what is good. Not because we have to, but because it's an expression of the life of Christ in us. It is living out the transformation that takes place. And then living that out, it impacts those around us. I love what uh, Paul writes in a couple of verses. In Romans 5, 6 through 8, he says this. You see, at just the right time, when we were powerless, when we were helpless in our sin, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then in 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16, Paul relates this to his own life. He says, and you'll notice the same phraseology here. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ came into the world. What? That's the incarnation. His birth we celebrate at Christmas. He came into the world to save sinners of whom, Paul says, I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown what? Mercy. So that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display His immense patience as an example for those who would believe in Him and receive eternal life. Do you see that passage carries the same thought as our verses here, 3 through 8. Paul is saying, listen, God showed me mercy. He changed my life. And my life is an example to everyone that they may see what is possible for them through Jesus Christ. And that's what he's telling Titus to tell the church on Crete. He's saying, listen, because of your past, because of your present salvation and your understanding of that, you should be compelled to live your life in such a way and do good What he means is there, showing mercy and grace that you've received, not being judgmental, but merciful and and showing grace towards those who don't know Christ. And your very lives will be an example to them of what Christ can do for them. Do you see that thought here that's present? The historian Rodney Stark writes this. How did the birth of Jesus change the world? The historian Rodney Stark argues that there was one huge factor that held capture the attention of the ancient world. Now, you may not know this, but this is powerful stuff. Christianity's revolutionary emphasis on mercy. Listen to what Stark writes. In the midst of squalor, misery, illness of ancient cities. Christianity provided an island of mercy and security, and it started with Jesus. In the pagan world, and especially among philosophers, mercy was regarded as a character defect and pity as a pathological emotion because mercy involves providing unearned help or relief 
It is contrary to justice. Thus, humans must learn, according to the philosophers, to curb the impulse to show mercy. The cry of the undeserving for mercy must go unanswered. That's what the philosophers taught. Showing mercy was a defective character, unworthy of the wise, and excusable only in those who have not yet grown up. That was the moral climate in which Christianity was taught. And Christianity taught that a merciful God requires humans to be merciful. Do you understand how revolutionary that thought was on the island of Crete? As Paul's writing to Titus, as he's encouraging Titus to teach the church to do those things, to live that way in the world, it was contrary to the average thought of the person of that day. And it's that way still with us. You know, if we're honest, I think we have to admit that sometimes we're much better at at passing judgment than passing mercy. As a pastor, John Burke of Gateway Church in Austin, Texas, listen to what he writes. He said, I assume that I was not a judgmental person. But just in case he was wrong, he tried an experiment. For a whole week, he kept track of his judgments about people. Here's what he discovered. Now I'm quoting him. Judging others is fun. Judging others makes you feel good. And I'm not sure I've gone a single day without this sin. In any given week, I might condemn my son numerous times for a messy room, judge my daughter for being moody, with especially which especially bothers me when I'm moody. But I have good reason. Even my dog gets the hammer of condemnation from his bad breath. So you may be thinking, wait, are you saying that correcting my kids for a messy room is judging? No. But there's correction that values with mercy and there's correction that devalues with judgment. I watch the news and condemn those, quote, idiotic people who do such things. Most reality TV shows are full of people I can judge as sinful, arrogant, stupid, childish, ignorant. I get in my car and I drive and find our public, uh, find our Department of Public Safety for good measure. Little condemnation on them. They're not doing their job. People on the road have flunked their driving tests. At the store, I complain to myself about the lack of organization that makes it impossible to find what I'm looking for. All the while being tortured by Muzak. Who picks that music anyway? I stand in the shortest line, which I judge as too long, because look, people, it says ten items or less. And I count more than that in your baskets. What's wrong with you? And why can't that teenage checker, well, what is she wearing? Focus on work so I can get out of here. Then he concludes, judging is our favorite pastime. If we're honest, but we're not, we're great at judging the world around us by standards we would highly resist 
being held to ourselves. Judging makes us feel good because it puts us in a better light than others. Yep, we're pretty good at passing judgment. But Paul's letter today is encouraging us to pass the mercy. Please. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that as far as the east is from the west, that's how far you've removed your transgression from us, our transgression from us. Father, thank you for the word that we've heard today that we should remember where we were before we entered into relationship with you through your son, that we should think about our salvation, about your work of mercy and grace in our life. And Lord, as a result, it should inform how we relate to others who don't know you. Father, we ask this Christmas that you would help us to re-gift mercy. Lord, that we would pass on frivolous judgments, but instead we would pass mercy. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.